Welcome to another episode of our Six Questions podcast. I'm Trent England for Save Our States, where we defend the Electoral College all the time and all around the country. Really excited to be talking with former Congressman David McIntosh, who is someone um, I've been aware of for a long time uh, since he was in Congress and, and you know one of the real conservative champions there uh, back when I was first becoming involved in politics and public policy. So uh, very, very glad to have this conversation today. Uh, he is the president of the Club for Growth, which is a really important force for conservative ideas in elections around the country. David, welcome to Six Questions. Great to be with you, Trent. Thank you for that kind introduction. Yeah, no, I, you know, somewhere I have a a photograph that I, I think I got when I interned in D.C. of the House impeachment managers. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, that's great. <laughs> that's a that's a treasured early memento. So so tell folks. The first question is: Tell folks what is the club for growth, and and what do you do? Yeah, thank you. So the club for growth is the largest um, conservative political group that's engaged in elections. Um, we we advocate for free markets, limited government, and individual freedom. And that's the core of the club. But the way we promote those principles and those ideas is by electing champions for them. And so we have a pack that our members can contribute directly to campaigns through. By the way, membership is for free. So any of your listeners who want to join, I'd love to have you uh, go to our website, clubforgrowth.org. Just sign up. Um, you'll get information from us. No commitment. We will continually send you things about these great candidates and ask you if you want to give to them. Um, so be prepared for that. But over the 25 year history, we've endorsed and supported people ranging from Mike Pence when he first ran for Congress, um, Ted Cruz. Uh, we were for Ron DeSantis when he first ran for Congress, uh, Rand Paul. Uh, Marco Rubio, um, Chip Roy now in the House, who's a great defender of, of freedom. And so we've become the largest independent super PAC and the third largest super PAC in the country in this cycle. And we're only in races where there is a conservative champion. So a lot of the work we do is in the primaries where there might be a more moderate or liberal Republican up against a good conservative. Uh, one in Oklahoma, Trent, that I'm sure you followed yeah. was Josh Brakeen, who was in a primary with, I think, six or seven other individuals. We identified Josh as a great champion for liberty. He, he's like Tom Coburn, who served with me, a, a real dog with a bone, if you will, on spending. And we got behind Josh early, helped him get into a runoff, and then helped him win that runoff against a more moderate Republican who was running as a conservative, but had a record of being sympathetic to big spending, big government that we often see in Republicans when they get into office. And Josh won that uh, runoff is, I think, pretty sure going to win the election in yeah. November and will be a great member of Congress. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's that was a real work that we do. That, that was a really important win for conservatives, not just in Oklahoma. I mean, I think particularly in Oklahoma to make sure that we are using these, you know, these red seats that, that Oklahoma has uh, to actually elect conservative candidates. But yeah, that I mean, 
the, the club for growth was instrumental in making sure that a conservative came through the, the primary and the runoff. And uh, uh, yeah, so as an Oklahoma, I, I, even though I'm not in that district, I thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what our job is and, and I appreciate it. And this cycle, we realized there were maybe 20 or 25 races, mostly in Republican seats that were coming open. Either they were an open seat or we could challenge the Democrat and in a good Republican year, win the seat back. And so we spent a fair amount of money, probably around 25 million in the super PAC in these different primaries to get the most conservative candidate nominated as the Republican. In a couple of cases, redistricting put two sitting members together. So in Illinois, you had Mary Miller, who was a new member and a really strong member of the House Freedom Caucus up against one of the more liberal members. And that more liberal member had friends in Washington that ended up spending about $6 million for him as on independent expenditures. So we had to match that to make sure that Mary could win that race. And she did. So we, we finished the summer with, um, I, I think we won all but two of the primaries that we were in in the House. One of them was another race in Oklahoma where we our candidate just couldn't overcome the popularity of one of his opponents. And so we weren't able to do to win all of them. But we had a, a good record and felt good about it. Then in the fall, we realized the most important thing is the majority in the Senate. Republicans are very likely to get the majority in the House. It's a much more conservative Republican caucus because of the victories we had in the primary. But now we, and we looked at it and realized Adam Laxalt in Nevada was a race that was very close and that outside conservative support, one, we helped him in his primary, so we endorsed him early, but outside conservative support could put him over the top against Senator Masto, who yeah. had voted you know, 95, 96% of the time with Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and the hard left that controls the Democrat party. And so we got behind Adam and been very engaged in his race when it looked like he was in good shape and likely to win. And you don't know until election day and it's yeah. still very close, but we were able to fully fund a program there and then looked at another race, Mike Lee's in Utah that nobody expected, right? Mm -hmm. Mike's been a great champion and Club for Growth PAC supported him when he first ran. He's been a good friend of ours. He comes to our conferences. And he's always a reliable constitutional conservative. But Mitt Romney quietly sponsored this guy, Evan McMullen, to run against him as an independent. And you might remember, Trent, Evan was the guy in 2016 yeah. who ran against Clinton and Trump as the independent at Never Trumper, basically. And so we, we started checking that. Everybody assumed Mike would be fine. And we realized that because... The Democrats in this case didn't nominate anybody. So they said, we're going to get behind McMullen. Yeah. And the moderate Romney Republicans liked him, that it could be a close race. And, and Romney's team helped raise a lot of money from folks like the Lincoln Project and big Democrat donors that saw an opportunity to take out one of the best conservatives in the Senate. And about three weeks ago, it became a tied race. Um, yeah. And that concerned us. So we basically doubled our budget. We're in there with two sets of ads. Uh, the one that's really working well is John Huntsman, the former governor, who was known as a more moderate governor, 
but knew and respected and liked Mike Lee because of his integrity. And so we put up an ad that said, basically, you might not always agree with Mike Lee, but he's a good man. He has integrity. He'll follow the Constitution. Utah needs Mike Lee. And that brought back those wayward Republicans. And so I, I'm proud to say Mike's back in a lead in the polling that we have. Uh, you know, again, you don't know till Election Day, but I'm I'm confident he's going to be able to win. Yeah, which which is important to me because I, I think Senator Lee is the member of, you know, in all of Congress, he is the the member most vocal about defending the Electoral College. So I'm yeah, yes. we're certainly hoping to have him back. I mean, the, the second question I had for you is is about the Senate. I mean, is there a sleeper race out there where conservatives could could see, uh, you know, a, a victory in a place that the media maybe isn't isn't focused on so much? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it, it has media attention, but one of the races that Republicans like uh, Mitch McConnell's super PAC wrote off was Arizona, yeah. where they thought Blake Masters can't win. They got into a fight with his big supporter, Peter Thiel. And as a result, Blake was beaten up by this guy, Mark Kelly, who had a big war chest. And but we realized, in spite of all the negative ads, all the attacks, that he was still within three points a couple of weeks ago. So Club for Growth Super PAC, again, shifted our attention. We started raising money and we're going to probably end up spending about 10 million there. And I think Blake has a great shot to win that race. Um, realistic odds are probably 50-50. But to come back from a race that everybody would written off to now a chance for victory, I think, is a great accomplishment by Blake Masters. The, the other sleeper ones that I'd watch um, would be New Hampshire that's starting to get some talk. Uh, I saw some polling there that showed it was a tied race. And Senator Hassan is very weak. She's not really liked by people in New Hampshire. And and Baldock has now consolidated the Republican support and is a good, he's a, a kind of Trump conservative, not necessarily a Mike Lee Liberty conservative, but, but way better than um, Hassan would be. And then the other one to watch, I think, unfortunately, we never end up winning these, but we can hope and, and see would be in Washington state where, again, we've got a great candidate, a Republican that stands for all the right things and not much funding behind her. But I think she's got a good chance to pick off Patty Murray, yeah, especially Tiffany, if there's a big wave. Tiffany Smiley's done great in the debates and she's out yeah. there all, all over the state. I, that's, I'm originally from Washington State and there's there's a lot of excitement, which I think is is important because, you know, states like Washington and Oregon in my opinion, aren't as blue as they sometimes look. But, you know, right. conservatives have gotten very dispirited and don't necessarily turn out to vote in those states and the the numbers that they that they ought to. Right. Uh, and hopefully that turnout metric will change. Yeah. Oregon's another example more in the governor's race there yeah. where the prediction is the Republicans going to win. The people were so dissatisfied with the radical left policies of the Democrat governor um, and that may carry two or three congressional seats as well. Yeah. Um, and, and that would be a sea change in politics, right? You from the Northwest, yeah. you realize how hard it is for Republicans to win. Yeah, it's, but it's really I mean, I, I again, I maybe I'm overly optimistic, but that's kind of my my nature. But I mean, Washington state, 
Uh, I just don't think it's it's quite as blue. I mean, it's a blue state. I just don't think it's quite as blue as people oftentimes assume that it is. If well, you look you look back at the results and they win, but very narrowly yeah. time after time. That means there's a lot of moderate and conservative voters that don't like the radical left progressives. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking with David McIntosh here on our Six Questions podcast. He's the president of Club for Growth, former congressman from Indiana. Uh, David, another question. There is a lot of talk, even in the mainstream media, about minority groups, particularly Hispanics, whom Rep uh, Democrats have taken for granted just about forever, switching and voting Republican uh, in, in large numbers and not just on the margin. Uh, are you seeing that in some of these races where the Club for Growth is working? I am. I'm really glad you asked about it. Uh, in two of the Senate state races that I mentioned, Nevada and Arizona, we are seeing a shift, much like what happened in Texas with President Trump uh, two years ago. And honestly, Trent, we thought about this about a year ago and realized Biden was sending a signal to Hispanics that they were kind of second class members of their coalition. He only wanted a, a black vice president. He only wanted a black woman on the Supreme Court and didn't even consider very qualified Democrat Hispanic jurists that could be nominated to that Supreme Court position. So we went out and did, there's polling in the campaign where you ask people, who are you for, the Republican or the Democrat? Then there's a, a type of polling you do that goes deep, that really talks to people about what they care about, what are their issues and concerns, how are they gonna base their vote, how are they thinking, about their political identity, do they are they loyal Democrats? Are they willing to consider the other party? And we did that in the Latino community in Nevada and Arizona, anticipating that we'd be engaged in those races. And we found some really interesting results. That the things that the, uh, the Latino community cared about were essentially the same major concerns that that most Americans have. They want a good economy. They want an opportunity to have a job and, and be safe. Inflation eats away at their earnings as well. They care about safety in their communities. And so the defund the police effort that came out of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, they're dramatically opposed to that. They want safety and, and support policing in their communities. And then education, um, that, that they see as the opportunity for their children to become fully Americans and progress. And, and they, they realized the schools during COVID let down their children. And they, they have a sense, I think, being minorities that, hey, we're the first ones to suffer when the schools don't function well. Uh, either they become violent and unsafe if you're in the inner city, or they just don't teach our kids what they need to know. And so those are messages, all three of them, that we at the Club for Growth have hit hard in this election cycle. So we dedicated, it, it's going to end up being almost $4 million of advertising to advertise to that community in mail pieces and Spanish language ads, talking to them about the issues that are the same issues we're talking about to the rest of the community. But we're acknowledging to them, you're important to us. We, we Essentially, the message is, come and join our coalition the Democrats don't really want you that much. They take you for granted. 
We didn't say that, but that's the implicit message. Yeah. And we want you on our team because we share the same values and it's working. In, in Adam Laxalt's race, the last time there was a, a statewide race there, the Republican, I think, got about 25% of the vote. Now that's up to 45% of the Hispanic votes that are going to vote for Adam Laxalt. And we're going to keep pushing. I'm hope my goal is let's get a let's get an outright win more than yeah. more than fifty percent. But even that forty five is a sea change. And my goal in doing this, and we're doing now the same thing in Arizona for Blake Masters. My goal in doing all this was study it, think about how we can reach out to that community. They're just like the rest of us, right? They they care about our country. They love our country. They want opportunity. They want freedom. They want a good economy. They want safe schools, safe neighborhoods. Reach out to them and have them become part of our coalition. When we finish doing this, I'm going to, to, we're pretty scientific and data driven at the Club for Growth. I'm going to package it up and just share it with the Republican Party and say, yeah. this, this isn't a Club for Growth secret recipe here, but this is what works. And urge my colleagues in the party to let's be explicit and say, we want the Hispanic community, Latinos, to be part of our coalition. So uh, diving diving into that, maybe a little bit deep here, but it strikes me that you, know, you mentioned the interest of Hispanics is really the same as the interest of, of all Americans. And I think like, you know, like in every community, there's this sliver of a, of a group of radical progressive activists. But of course, if you're if you're white, nobody says, well, you know, the, the progressive activists who are white don't say, well, I'm a white progressive activist, so all white people have to think like I do, or you're not a real white person. But in minority communities, the progressive activists take that position. They say, you know, I'm a Hispanic progressive activist and other Hispanics have to think like me or they're not good Hispanics. You see that in the black community. I mean, do you think that that is 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 creating an environment um, in some of these communities where that, you know, people are starting to sort of figure this out? And I mean, it's it's inherently offensive, I, I right. think. And I, I've heard these rumblings from Texas that, that partly it's that going on, that people sort of wake up to this and say, wait a second, this is you know, this is really obnoxious uh, to say the least, and they they don't want to be affiliated with that. I mean, do you, is do you think that's an accurate read of about part of what's going on? Trent, I want to I want to answer that in two ways. Um, the first is to say yes, I do think that's part of what's going on, and you know, in especially in the Latino community, this whole very um, progressive woke sense of no gender. Right. We're, and they even created a word, Latin X. Yeah. Um, and it, I don't know who thought of that, but if they knew anything about Spanish language, if they'd taken that in high school or anything about the culture, every word in their language that's a noun is assigned a gender. Um, it, it's a very gender based language and language affects culture. And so they're not going to give up the notion that there's male and female um, and people are males or females, and it it just uh, was an insult to them in some ways. And that's that's your white progressive thinking everybody should think like us. Yeah. Um, and I think that created an opportunity for us to say, hey, we, we don't agree with them, but and and we want to respect you for who you are and your culture. 
The second thing that I, I want to pick up on was something you mentioned, which was the sense among these activists that if you don't agree with me with this progressive left woke ideology, then you're not really black or you're not really Hispanic. Um, that's a broader trend that I'm starting to notice in the far left. And it we call it cancel culture. More deeply, it's dehumanization that you're not a real person if you don't agree with me. Uh, you're, not in, you're not in my race if you don't agree with me. You're not a real person that matters. We're starting to see a lot of that on MSNBC and the far left about the election, that, hey, if, if we don't win, if our side doesn't win, then uh, these aren't real people. Uh, Hillary picked it up a little bit with calling people deplorables. Yeah. And that notion that, any American is less than a full American or less than a full human, even if you don't agree with them, is very dangerous. And the left is starting to adopt that and to dehumanize people they don't agree with. The only other ideology in modern history that's done that was fascism in World War II, where they explicitly said certain groups of people, gays, Jews, other people, were less than human and we don't have to give treat them with human dignity and full respect. And the, the logical consequence that we saw play out there was horrible, right? We're not there in the United States. I'm not accusing anybody of that. But it's a dangerous notion once you start saying some people are less human than others and or deserve less dignity, integrity, don't deserve speech rights. Um, they're not part, they're not really black if they don't agree with me. All those notions that make people less than end up leading us down a very dangerous path. And I think in society, we need to reach out across the aisle with our Democrat friends who still believe in the First Amendment, still believe in human dignity, and say, no, left or right, we are not going to accept an ideology that starts saying certain people are less than. That is uh, very well said. Um, the penultimate question here, David, you mentioned it looks like Republicans are going to take the House. The caucus is set to be more conservative, perhaps, than, you know, than ever before. What is it that Congress can do, could do to tackle the economic problems that I think are, you know, really the concern for a lot of Americans with inflation running so high, no end in sight, interest rates headed up, no end in sight, uh, you know, I think sometimes people expect Congress to do too much. Other people have this attitude that Congress can't do anything. And, you know, they, they just want the executive to sort of have the pen and the phone and, and you know, solve all of our problems. But what, you know, if, if Republicans do take back Congress, you have a lot of conservative uh, conservatives there. What what should they do? So I would say two things. Um, and you're right. There's a limited amount that Congress can do, particularly if the president's going to veto it. But one of the things they should do is fo focus on inflation. And we need to step back and remember, what is inflation? It's when we've printed and put out there more money than the than is supported by the economy. And that happened, and, and we got to be honest, it happened at the end of the Trump administration with Republicans in Congress and Democrats in Congress. It was a panic with the pandemic. and But there's still a lot of money out there that's sloshing around. I read about a local community that was going to use its COVID funds 
to start giving every family, uh, I think it was about $500 subsidy. So uh, uh, they were calling it a living uh, wage subsidy. Well, that's just cash that's in the system that's causing this inflation. So the next Congress should say, we're going to pull that back. Anything that hasn't been spent, stop spending. And we're going to stop spending beyond our means. So we're not going to have these big omnibus bills where we just plus up everything, um, including the, the agreement that some conservatives have made with the left that, okay, we'll, we'll plus up welfare and all the domestic spending if you plus up military spending. I think it's time that Congress puts a break on all of that and says we have to live within our means. It's painful. The political guys will say, no, you never lose if you vote for more money, so don't do it. But the American people deserve a Congress that will now do something to pull back on the spending that is the cause of inflation. The other side of it is grow the economy, right? So you've got too much money for the economy. Well, let's grow the economy and then you don't have to have as much pain on cutting the spending. And the biggest factor that I see there is the overregulation by the Biden administration, the shutdown in the oil and gas industry of production, the ESG type regulations coming out of the securities area, all of, one after the other, the, either driven by a woke ideology or this climate agenda that they have that is it goes way beyond addressing the climate and is essentially trying to control the energy sector. Healthcare, the same way, is way overregulated. If we can pull back on those regulations, history has shown us that frees up the economy, frees up ingenuity, creates more jobs, uh, allows the economy to grow and people to prosper. And that helps take care of the inflation problem as well. Very good. Well, uh, David McIntosh, president of the Club for Growth, former congressman from Indiana. Our final question on our Six Questions podcast is always the same. And that is, who is your favorite founding father and why? Oh, I love that question, Trent. Um, one of the things I did in my youth was, was help form a group called the Federalist Society. So I thought a lot about uh, the founding fathers. And, and my favorite is uh, James Madison. And, and the reason is he put together in the con Constitutional Convention the compromises that created our system of divided government, where you have got executive authority in the president, legislative authority in Congress, judicial authority in, in the courts, and divided with federalism, that the states retained power that wasn't given to the federal government. All of that was a result of his his genius about thinking about what kind of government will protect freedom and individual and prosperity. A little known fact about Madison was that he studied at what's uh, become Princeton College. And he, one of his professors there was a, a man named Witherspoon who was a theologian. And Witherspoon, I think was a Presbyterian and had studied the the corruption in the Catholic Church and the Church of England, where it had become dedicated more to human interest and prosperity than to spiritual interests. And Witherspoon thought, nothing's going to be perfect on earth because humans are fallen. But if we divide authority, maybe we won't have this problem that we've got in a centralized church in the Church of England and, and in the Catholic Church. 
And so he taught that in his classes. Madison picked that up and transferred it from a theological uh, insight into a government political formation insight and used that as the basis for developing the grand compromise that is our constitution. So Madison's my favorite and, and that's the reason why. That's a great, that's a great answer. You can't go wrong with, with uh, James Madison. And, uh, you know, I, it always strikes Washington's me. close too, because he gave up power right. and, well, and it, it's very noble that he did that. And he set yeah. an example for others. What, what strikes me about Madison though, is, you know, he, his involvement with Washington made Washington a much better uh, leader, president, you know, he he was involved in drafting the farewell address. His yeah. involvement with Jefferson was probably critical to Jefferson not making a whole slew of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> with his sort of, you know, fiery, uh, 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 you know, philosophical temperament and, uh, you know, and, and his partnership with Hamilton writing the Federalist Papers. I mean, Madison is this guy who who made the people around him better, uh, which I think just speaks yeah. to his his capacity and his his leadership. And uh, yeah, I, I love that answer. Well, uh, David, remind people one more time as we wrap up here, how do they connect with the Club for Growth? How can they follow your work? Yeah, thank you. Uh, our website is clubforgrowth.org. Uh, please go there, sign up. We'll send you information about all these races and candidates in the future. Uh, we vet them very carefully. So we interview like 350 candidates and then select about 35 that we support. But then as a member, you choose, do I, do I want to support this candidate or not? And um, we, we would love to have you be part of the Club for Growth. Um, I'm, I hope you would be proud to say you're part of the largest conservative political movement and one that is always going to be principled and driven by those principles uh, more than politics or personal interests. So uh, please join us, clubforgrowth.org, and and I hope you like it. Wonderful. Uh, David McIntosh, thank you so much for being a part of Six Questions. My pleasure. Thank you, Trent. Yeah, and thanks to all of you for watching or listening. Remember to give us a great rating, share this podcast on your social media, uh, email it to friends, help us get the word out as we defend the Electoral College and our constitutional system all year round. We're going to have some big fights, I think, coming up next year, 2023, in state legislative sessions. For now, I'm Trent England for Save Our States. Thanks for watching.